My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. If there is one message that our governments have been trying to drum into us over the past year, it's that we need to stay home. This campaign has been continuous and relentless enough that my own province's premier decided to hop on Google Translate and murder a few dozen languages to get his point across. Garma Raho, Life Alchebet House, Gare Takun, Stats Akasa, Ostani Kodkucha. And listen, premier, I have been staying home. Most of my friends have, so has my family. If you're listening to this, I'm sure most of you have been staying home, too. Not everybody has a home, though. Homelessness is a systemic problem, for sure. One that's been around for hundreds of years. One we haven't solved. But it's also a problem that is so much more dangerous in the middle of a pandemic winter. Right now, the late-night coffee shops, the mall bathrooms the public libraries and water fountains, and so much more, are closed. Those are the things that provide services to people without homes. Those are the things that keep them alive. The pandemic even forces shelters closed if the virus is found in them. And that forces people out into the Canadian winter with no refuge except for a porta potty from the howling wind. And that has deadly Results. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jake Kavanch is a reporter and writer based in Toronto who looked into exactly how deadly this winter can be for vice. Hello, Jake. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Um, I'm glad that you're looking at this topic. I know this is not a usual winter uh, for people who live on the streets. Why don't you just start um, by telling me about uh, the man who who started this story for you? Uh, who is Raphael Andre and what happened to him? So uh, I don't know much about Raphael. Uh, I have not been to the shelter where he stays. Uh, I have spoken to some people there. And, you know, the general sense that I got was that uh, and this happens with a lot of folks who who pass away in the street. Um, you know, is that they're very caring, very helpful people. The communities that they are a part of, they love being a part of. And uh, in this case, uh, Mr. Andre was certainly a, a friend of the shelter, and the shelter was a friend of him. But because of the the COVID nineteen uh, health order that was given for the shelter to shut down. Um, he was forced to sleep outside instead of being able to stay indoors. Following the death of an Indigenous homeless man on the streets of Montreal, his body was found in a portable toilet just meters away from a shelter that had been forced to close its overnight services because of pandemic restrictions. Um, and it's, it's not uncommon to, you know, many people I talk to who are harm reduction workers, 
um, or otherwise work with homeless people, um, it, it's definitely not uncommon to uh, for homeless folks who are using drugs to go into a porta potty because usually it is the only sort of um, private space that they have available to them, um, albeit it is not a a healthy or, or safe place to be. Can you explain just a bit, maybe, about the circumstances surrounding his death before we move on to, to the bigger issue? You mentioned that, you know, he was part of a shelter community, uh, but he was not in the shelter. Why not, and, and how do those rules impact the shelter? Yeah, so essentially what happened was the shelter had uh, had an outbreak of COVID-19 in December, and so they were told that, that they could reopen at the beginning of the year, um, but they would not be able to stay open past 930 Presumably, this is because people would, you know, be staying, sleeping indoors, spending more time indoors together. Uh, maybe during the day, people are coming in and out, and there's less of a um, uh, there's less of a chance of a spread of the virus. It, that seems to be what the municipal health authority believes. Um, so there was that nine thirty curfew. It, it, it should be noted that it's, it's this. Uh, uh, 9.30 closing time is different than the provincial curfew that is currently um, enforced and uh, being enforced in Quebec. And uh, there has been calls to the Premier, uh, Francois Legault, um, to uh, give homeless people an exemption from this curfew. Um, I, I don't know if that would have made a difference here, but I certainly think that some of the recent lockdown measures are um, are certainly backfiring much more than they did during the first wave on people who are homeless um, or, or otherwise experiencing, you know, some form of uh, lack of shelter. Right. Well, as you mentioned, there's a, a pretty hard curfew in Quebec right now. And, and it does apply to homeless people as well. What are homeless people supposed to do in a curfew that orders them off the streets? So, from my understanding, the, the general uh, uh, the, the general general message being sent by the premier and by the police is that homeless people will be fine. They're not going to be ticketed. Although the, the, we've seen some instances where uh, homeless people have been ticketed. Uh, this this happens all the time, even pre COVID. Homeless people being ticketed for sleeping inside of bus shelters, or you know, being ticketed for sleeping on the street corner. So it's it's not really a, a COVID specific thing, but certainly the only people that are probably going to be outside during a curfew are people who don't have a, a, a home to stay in. And so right now, Francois Legault, the premier, has said that there is no exemptions. Um, he has said that uh, his concern with allowing an exemption for homeless people is that it would create incentive for people to break curfew and then say that they're homeless. Um, when approached by a police officer, hmm. which I, I think there are a number of reasons why that's not a strong argument. I mean, you know, someone, I'm, I'm sure someone who's going to their friend's house or partying or whatever they're doing or, you know, trying to do after 8 p.m. is not going to go through the trouble of disguising themselves as a homeless person. But, um, <laughs> that's that, that's literally what the premier had said that they that that, that that they would disguise themselves as homeless people. So uh, it's I think it's a bit absurd. Also, the other issue here, which is that you know this is coming at a time when a lot of people are, uh, you know, not only are, are there encampments everywhere because of you know not being able to stay in shelters, 
Um, but more and more people are kind of facing homelessness now. Right. In the at least here in Toronto, <clears throat> in, in in terms of the frontline workers that I, I've spoken to, um, they're meeting a lot of first timers, a lot of people who've never been homeless before. Some people who are in their um, mid to late twenties, um, hmm. and for those kind of people, especially these situations are are really destabilizing because um, you know you're, you're trying to figure out how to get by day to day, um, and you're also now trying to avoid running into problems with the law, running into problems with perhaps other folks that are outside. Um, so it, it's a mess. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. Tell me a little bit more um, about the mess in general, because you spoke not just about uh, Raphael Andre and the situation in Montreal, but just about being homeless in this winter in particular, what are some of the advocates and, and frontline workers that you talk to saying are, you know, the unique challenges, including but also aside from the fact that there's a really infectious virus circling? You know, it's it's interesting because at the beginning of this, a lot of people that I spoke to, both frontline workers, advocates, uh, homeless people, they, they all agreed that the government measures that were being taken were much more beneficial than than they had ever been before. You know, um, cities like Toronto uh, and Vancouver and I believe Montreal as well, mm -hmm. having test pilots where, you know, they're essentially setting up hotels for people to stay in and everyone gets their own individual room. The, these things at the beginning were seen as a blessing. A lot of, you know, folks I spoke to who live on the street said that COVID was like the best thing to happen to them in two years because... Wow. It had given them the 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 dignity again of being able to, you know, sleep in a bed and wake up and then maybe think about what they need to do to to get their life going. But in recent months, not only has that kind of come to a halt, a lot of funding uh, has slowed down. So a lot of these hotels are kind of either maxed out or um, the the leases that the city has purchased for them have have expired. And the other side to that, that, the benefit of these hotels is that the whole reason they're being created is to benefit people like us, like you or I. Um, you know, the only reason that homeless people are being maybe even paid attention to is because they po pose a health, public health risk to other people who, are who have houses. Mm. It's a bit of a strange situation where homeless people are caught in a world that's managing itself and trying to figure things out and they're changing laws and saying, you have to do this and... And we're going to put you here and, and they're being told to do things or, and being told that they can't do certain things. And, and, and everyone else is also being told to do things and, and told that they can't do certain things. But the difference is, is that homeless people experience it constantly. They experience it all the time. And people who are, who are housed, you know, it's just like a minor inconvenience of, so, you know, you pass a camp, uh, an encampment and maybe someone's shouting. Uh, the, other, the other thing that I definitely hear from 
I mean, you can see this anecdotally in some of the columns that are published in some of the major newspapers. There's been a rise in uh, NIMBYism. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of pe- people who are referred to as NIMBYs are, are typically people who might be supportive of something like, uh, you know, turning a building into um, low-income housing units. Uh, but if the site that's chosen is in their neighborhood, they find it problematic. You know, they protest. We've had a bunch of protests here in Toronto. The stigma and fear of homeless people has has shown up in the in the last year. A, a lot of love and a lot of people coming coming out in support and doing things that are good and and nice, um, but also a lot of fear. And uh, the, and the, the government action is sort of. The, an example of that, uh, of, uh, you know, things that could have been done decades ago, but are now only being done because people with money are afraid. What about just how the landscape of our cities uh, and neighborhoods has changed in the past year, uh, you know, since since the last tough Canadian winter um, that some people had to spend on the streets? You know, we're now under stay-at-home orders, and and I'm imagining there are a ton of of resources that used to just kind of casually exist uh, that homeless people could take advantage of for help. And and a lot of those are probably gone, no? Well, totally. And a lot of that has to do with just, I mean, you know, I, I remember when I, uh, when the first lockdown happened, walking out into the streets and seeing nobody there but cops and homeless people. Right. So, so anyone who's relying on panhandling to get by, you know, even even simple things like public restrooms have been eliminated this entire time. You know, homeless people can't just stop into a McDonald's or a Tim Hortons or a Starbucks or some other place that you know pretty much always has the restroom open to anybody. They can't, most public toilets, like the city-run public toilets, pretty all almost all of them are closed except for the porta potties. You know, I, I I notice it when I go for runs or or when I you know go on a, a hike down a trail, like it's. It's just so much more apparent that these simple things, these simple sort of basic necessities have disappeared. You know, just as a, as a personal example, every day coming back to my house, I walk through this alley and this alley has this one big vent um, and it comes out of this restaurant and it's always blowing heat. And so I, I always usually turn my face the other way. But for the last year prior to COVID, there, there was always one man sitting there at night and it was really sad. He would sit there with an umbrella in front of him trying to reflect the heat back onto him. And I, ha- and I haven't seen him here all, the entire year because there's no, the, because the restaurant is not functioning. So the heat's not on. Yeah, the heat's not on. Like, like you know, the homeless people look to the, look to businesses and, the people that are more well off in the city for, you know, to, to scrounge up basic necessities uh, for, for for comfort, for warmth, for, you know, going to the bathroom, for medicinal supplies, for food, etc. And when everybody stays indoors, a lot of those things dry up. And so there's a lot of volunteerism, um, a big a big step up in volunteerism. A lot of people are are you know volunteering their time to to specifically go out and make sure that people have food and that they're taken care of. But it, it you know, it, it is sad to see that the scale of operations that are deployed by groups like uh, Encampment Support Network here in Toronto is so much larger than anything 
that the city of Toronto or federal government or, or the provincial government offers. What else could be offered? And I mean, I guess it's it's one thing to talk about structural change and and huge, large programs that could uh, address some of this systemically, especially as uh, in Toronto and other places, homelessness is on the rise. But, you know, what could these governments do, uh, city or provincial, right now? What do advocates want that would just help save lives uh, like Raphael's as we try to get through the winter? I mean, the unfortunate thing about all of this is that it's hard to say what can be done uh, because um, the things that are required here in order to really help people out would require like radical change. And, and it doesn't seem like any level of government or politician is willing to do that. And, and I, I also understand why it's difficult to accomplish radical change to get the votes that you need. You know, just in, in the case of someone like Raphael, shelters should not be shut down. I understand that they are a potential for, uh, you know, the potential vector point for an outbreak. But again, the alternative is is now that people are people are sleeping outdoors. And if they're if if you're going to shut down shelters, then make sure that you know people are allowed to build uh, sleeping pods for homeless people without having them torn down. Like that's the other thing too, where police are coming into a lot of these camps and tearing down their tents, tearing down you know things that the, that people have built. <laughs> there's just there's such a lack of empathy there for for people who are really just trying to, you know, go to sleep most of the time. In the most basic sense, yeah, uh, returning the the shelters to uh, open status again, I, I really don't think those things should be shut down. I, I think that they are essential. Uh, opening public toilets, there, there's like no research uh, showing that COVID-19 has ever spread from particles, you know, flushed from a toilet we learned months ago that fomite surface transfer of COVID-19 is, is also very, very, very unlikely. And I would argue that these, that, that public bathrooms and that serve a better, more like a, they're better for public health than they um, pose a risk because um, people are able to wash their hands and go to the bathroom in a place that is built for that. Jake, thank you so much for... Uh, helping us understand uh, what it's like out there on the streets this winter. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you for having me. That was Jake Kavanch, and that was The Big Story. You can find more big stories at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can talk to us via email anytime. Thebigstorypodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And we are in your podcast player on Apple and Google and Stitcher and Spotify. We're also on Amazon Music, just in case you wanted to listen to us there. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.